If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Today we will finish chapter 10. There are 13 chapters in Hebrews. We are coming near the end. And we have found Hebrews to be a sermon letter written to encourage the people of God. We don't know who these specific people are. We don't know who the specific author is. But the message is crystal clear. Jesus is our only hope for the forgiveness of our sins. He is the one true atoning sacrifice. And we must not abandon him. We must not let go of him. We must not drift from him. It is the duty of the Christian to persevere in the faith through suffering, hardship, discouragement. We've got to hold fast to our profession and to the Lord Jesus That, again, will be the theme of this passage this morning. And then the good news, of course, as it's been every week, is not only are we called to hold fast to him, thank goodness, thank God, he holds fast to us. He does not let go of his people or of his church. There are four warning passages in Hebrews. These are typically the four most difficult passages for us when we handle the book of Hebrews. We've already preached through three of them. Hebrews chapter 2, we were told, don't drift. In Hebrews chapter 3, we were told, don't turn away. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, we were told, don't fall away. Those were all warnings of apostasy. Today is the fourth of four hard passages about the reality of apostasy. apostasy, And it is summarized as don't shrink. Don't shrink back. Now more of all that in just a minute. But to be clear, what I'm about to read, you're going to hear as a call to persevere in the faith. To not shrink back from your profession of faith in Jesus. To not stop believing. No matter how difficult the suffering or persecution. No matter how great the insult to you. The antagonism towards you. You and I are called to endure. To keep on and to carry on to the very end of our lives. How can we do this? Why must we do this? We'll give your attention to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Let's pray for God's help in understanding his holy word. Lord, would you be our teacher this morning, especially on a subject that has historically been so misunderstood, sometimes wrongly causing fear. But Lord, would you help us to search our own hearts to see if in us there is any wicked way. And would you lead us in the way everlasting that we might persevere in the true faith, in the true Savior, our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Warning lights and sounds and buzzers and alarms, they're all a part of our everyday experience. So perhaps the vehicle that you drive has a dashboard that at critical moments will light up, maybe ding, make a sound to draw your attention to something that could be very wrong. You know that experience. Now, the problem is your dashboards are probably like our dashboards, which is you reach a point at the certain age of a vehicle where all the lights are always on, right? You've always got low tire or um, my wife's van, I'm embarrassed to say, I guess this is a confession of sin. Her lights on her dashboard have all been on for, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years. And so when I haven't driven it for a while, I can get in it and all the lights come on and I'm like, oh my word. And I'm like, oh no, there's nothing to be alarmed about, right? Well, this is a warning in scripture. Remember, there are four warnings in the book of Hebrews that this pastor, and that is what he is, he is cautioning the people with real truth. It's, it's hard truth. And sometimes you and I can gloss right by it or, or read past it or explain it away so that it, it doesn't sober us, it doesn't warn us, kind of like the dashboard lights that we get so familiar with. But this is one of four passages that Maybe it's helpful to think of, it serves as like smelling salts in the Christian life. And you know, smelling salts are, are 
maybe you're familiar with the concept. Um, particularly in the, in the world of athletics, smelling salts were used to bring alertness to someone who was dazed and confused. And so it, it smarts, it hurts when you breathe in the smelling salt, but it is for your good to bring you, to make you sober, to make you alert. And so this morning, it's, it's a fourth smelling salt. You can go back and listen to these sermons or I'll give you a handout if you're interested. If you're visiting for the first time and you've missed everything said about apostasy in previous passages, um, much of what I say today assumes that. But let's look very briefly at hearing the three other warnings so that we understand how this one falls in with them. So the four warnings of Hebrews so far have been this. Hebrews chapter 2 from 1 and 3. We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard about the gospel, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So the warning is obviously It is possible to drift away. And the imagery there was like a boat in a harbor that lost its mooring and slipped away in the night, slipped away off to sea. That's a smelling salt. That's to sober you of, oh my word, I have felt that I am slipping. Or someone I love and care for, could they possibly be drifting That's a warning. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 and 12. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are His house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Then he says in verse 12, See to it, that's a command, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And so the smelling salt, the alarm is, it is possible through the hardness of my heart to turn away from all that God's grace and mercy has offered me. I'm to pay attention to my heart. I'm to be sensitive and aware of my heart and I'm to, to care for other people and for their possible hardening of heart. So we don't drift. We're not to turn away. And then thirdly, in chapter 6, verses 4 and 6, don't fall away, he says. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. That is the third smelling salt. That is the third warning. And it should cause one to do self-reflection. And then today, the fourth passage, which you just heard, where it's summed up as don't shrink. Don't shrink back, he says. And that language, visually, it means, it pictures 
Don't withdraw. Don't hide. Don't conceal. Don't give up. Don't quit in your profession of faith in the confident hope that Christians can have. And so every one of us who has professed faith in Christ, we walk under this condition. And this is what, by the way, in Southern evangelical culture is not emphasized with clarity. It is that condition of the covenant that we must persist in our faith. We must remain with Jesus. We in our American evangelical culture are so familiar with communication of the gospel as a kind of fire insurance, right? Well, don't you want to know that you're going to heaven? Oh, well, just pray this prayer. Got it covered. You're good. You're good to go. And so many well-meaning evangelical ministries in an effort to be simple and clear They drop the covenant conditionality that has always been the case. And the author of Hebrews, oftentimes what he says is so jolting and so sobering to us because our culture hasn't thought about covenant conditionality. We thought it was fire insurance. Mouth this prayer and they say you're good to go. Never mind your relationship with Jesus and his church and walking with him. Do you see the difference between contemporary culture and what biblically has been given to us. And so a few comments this morning about apostasy. And the first is this, it's real. Old Testament, New Testament, now, apostasy has always existed as a category in Scripture. Listen again to verses 28 to 31. And by the way, I know this is a lot of info this morning, um, but there's just no other way to do it. Um, Verse 28 to 31 Speaking in the Old Test, of the Old Testament, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And of course, the imagery there is to fall into the the hands of justice of a holy God. We learn elsewhere in scripture of what it is to fall into the arms of a God in mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. But the warning is there. And it's always been there. Um, In the New Testament, we're told, in Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus says this. This is the parable of the sower, and there's just nothing else to do but to read it. Now listen with that covenant conditionality that same message of Jesus. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, and it's true for us. It says, Jesus spoke many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, The plants were scorched, 
and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And then Jesus later explains the parable. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was, shown, what was sown. The author of Hebrews offers this warning, and it's not a new warning. Jesus himself gave the same warning. In the Old Testament, we covered this in a previous passage, but Numbers chapter 10 to 14 is all about an episode of apostasy in the life of Old Testament Israel. So the situation is this. It has always been the circumstance of all of God's people to persist in the faith, to seek to walk faithfully with Yahweh, to not abandon the only hope we have that is his mercy. The author says to do so is to, to hear the word, to hear the offer of grace in the person of Jesus, and to treat it as insignificant, to walk away from it, is to trample the blood of the covenant. To trample the Son of God. Now, trample, you understand what that word is. It's, it's to walk upon, to treat as unimportant, insignificant waste. You've probably seen a, a high school football game, a college football game. It's even happened in the NFL. Where the visiting team, before the game or after the game, will run out to the 50-yard line to where the logo of the home team is displayed, and what will they do? They'll, they'll desecrate it by trampling on it. Have you seen this? Uh, they'll plant their own flag at the 50-yard line. And that visibly is, in a sense, what he's saying there. That to turn away from your one redeemer, the one who can atone for your sins, and to plant your own flag and say, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to live life my way. I answer to no one. I got this. That, he says, is a hardening heart that is at risk of apostasy. At risk of apostasy. Well, how does apostasy start? Two more things to say. How does apostasy start and how does it stop? Well, apostasy starts, as you might guess, 
just through the work of sin in every one of our hearts. A work that wants to undo us. A work that makes us grumble against God. Grumble against His worship. Grumble against His commands. We start grumbling. The apostate heart is a grumbling heart. That's what happened in Numbers 10 to 14. Or it's the heart that gets bored with God, bored with His worship, and it disbelieves God and His promises. It's the heart that wants to do things its own way. It's it's the sin-hardened heart. That's how it starts. But it's also the work of sin through others. Apostasy can come through the invitation of others. Running with the wrong crowd. Doing the wrong things that you know are not healthy, that are not good. And what we find about our own hearts is they are easily led astray. They want to go astray. The apostate heart does. And so apostasy starts in our own heart. And it can be an invitation that comes from others. It's one of the reasons why the scripture says to choose your company and their character so carefully. So we can be led astray by others, but we can certainly do it ourselves. We can be enticed and dragged away, as the scriptures say. John Bunyan's allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, Uh, if you're familiar with it, captures this imagery pretty well. As he's to find the path and the narrow way to the city, and worldly wise men comes and offers him a golden path that looks so good, but it's headed in the wrong direction. We're easily led astray, either by our own hearts or by others. Theologian Ian Murray says this. This is important. He says, Scripture does not need to be denied for apostasy to begin. All that is needed is for Scripture to take second place in our calculations, in our thinkings, in our decisions. And that's important to realize. It may not be a heart that is completely hard at the moment to Scripture, but it Apostasy starts when the heart is willing to put Scripture aside and march to the beat of another drum, someone else's drum, even if it is you playing the drum. So that's how apostasy starts. Well, how does apostasy stop? Many things could be said here, but I think the most important is this. Apostasy stops by the work of God in us, by God undoing and reversing that hardening of heart like only he can do in his people. And there are two things that we're committed to based on the teaching of scripture that would serve as antidotes, so to speak, to apostasy. And that is God's word and God's spirit using that word in our hearts. God's Word and God's Spirit. That's what the sinful heart needs, is the Spirit of God to come and do a softening work, to do the surgery that only the Holy Spirit can do, and then to bring those gospel truths of His Word to bear upon that heart. That is why getting in the avenues of ministry is so important. That's where we believe God's Word and His Spirit usually work. 
through His Word, by His Spirit. And so GPC, you know, tries to create avenues for the good of your heart, whether it's the women's Bible study that meets tonight at 6 p.m., or the youth group that meets tonight at 6 p.m., or the Thursday Bible study that meets Thursday at 6.30 p.m., or the men's fellowship that meets this Thursday at 6 p.m. Those are more than just social gatherings. Those are intentional efforts for that word to work against the apostasy that could be true in every one of our sinful hearts. Do you see that? It's why we highlight the preaching of the word when we gather on Sunday morning. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel, refreshed in it. Because our hearts, if we withdraw, they will harden, they will stiffen, and they become at risk of this apostasy that the pastor, the author, is writing about. But not only is it at work in us through his word and spirit, it's also just like apostasy can come through other people, well, so can the end of apostasy. You can play a role in each other's lives, helping to cultivate reaccessing avenues of ministry, knowing and hearing God's word. You can do that for the good of each other through your relationships, your friendships, your praying for one another. We could plug here the teenagers and their effort to pray for the children of our church, which is an ongoing effort. What is that ultimately about? But the Spirit of God working in the hearts of our children in our church. So God can use us in the lives of one another. And if you've ever had someone minister to you in this way, you know how important it is. I could tell you a story of a girl who told me years ago. She was not in a good season in her spiritual life. But she was a spiritual leader. She was a spiritual doer of ministry. But she found in her own heart that she began to withdraw and not show up in the things that would remind her and refresh her with the gospel. And I'll never forget, she told me this over coffee one day. She said, Paul, I was not in a good place. I knew I was not in a good place, but I wouldn't do anything about it. But it was either a roommate or a friend, I can't remember. She grabbed me. She sat me down in my dorm room. And she wouldn't let go of hugging me and just being there for me. And as she would tell her story, I believe to this day, that is a critical moment. That is actually an example, my notes here say to talk about people tackling people, gospel tackling, it's a thing, where you know, you see someone you care for is not doing well. Are you willing to go and tackle them, so to speak, the way this girl tackled the other girl and said, we're going to talk about this now. Cancel your plans for the rest of the night. I'm concerned for you and your well-being. That's gospel tackling. Did you know the Christian life is a full contact sport? It can be. It can sure feel like it. People tackling people. It's also people pointing people homeward. Pointing people. This is where we're going, like Pilgrim's Progress. We're going to the celestial city. We're not going back to the city of destruction. Come this way. And oftentimes our friendships are at their best, our Christian friendships, when people are pointing people in the right direction. Because every one of us will wander, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's what we sing in one of our hymns. But more than that, 
more than tackling people and more than pointing people in a better direction. The Christian life and our working against apostasy in each other's lives is people walking with people, maybe hand in hand, arm in arm, to stay on the path, to go in the better direction, and walking with people all the way home. Not halfway home, but walking with people all the way home. And that, of course, would be a Christian marriage and the ideal of a Christian marriage where two sinners get married and say, I do, and they're to walk each other all the way home until one goes to be with the Lord. Derek Thomas has a book titled That Very Thing. It's called All the Way Home. He says, Romans chapter 8 is the best chapter in the Bible as Paul shows how the gospel brings believers all the way home. And you and I can help each other in that journey. We can walk with one another through encouragement. Ultimately, that is a part of our calling as a church, by the way. As a part of the church, we're not just consumed with our own hearts. We are concerned with our own hearts. But we've got to be concerned with one another. We've got to be doing things to help one another. Because this condition and this call that the author of Hebrews is reminding us, it exists for every one of us. Pastors too, especially pastors. Every one of us can be distracted, led astray. Our hearts will go, grow cold and hard. And so we have to be a people who have compassion for one another and an understanding of the reality of apostasy. It has always existed. It exists in this life just as it has in the past. But two things about this apostasy before we conclude. There are healthy views and understandings of apostasy. And there are unhealthy views and unhealthy perspectives of apostasy. Let me distinguish this. An unhealthy fear of apostasy is the heart that can have no peace. It has no real confidence in the gospel because of fear. And there are some people who are like this. Actually, in the third and fourth century, did you know that because of a misunderstanding, really about the content of the book of Hebrews, by the way, you remember how we heard that baptism was called the once for all sacrifice? You remember that language in Hebrews? Well, some wrongly concluded that that means you could be baptized once for sin, and therefore the strategy would be delay your baptism till your deathbed to make sure it covers all your sins. Constantine did that. Third and fourth century. This, by the way, is when baptism started being delayed. Sacerdotalism, the view that the sacraments saved, began to dominate the thinking of the church. And there are ramifications to the delaying of baptism even in our day and in our culture. That's a misunderstanding of what it is to have Jesus as your great high priest. Everything the author of Hebrews has said. That is an unhealthy fear where the scriptures would say, come and be united to Christ. Embrace him and know that he embraces you. You want no identity but identity with him. And out of a fear, people pushed off that good call 
redefined it and did something else with it. So that's an unhealthy fear. What's a healthy view, practice, understanding of the reality of apostasy? I think it's this. I'll share this in a way as an illustration. Some of you may know in the PCA a minister by the name of Hal Farnsworth. He pastored for many years in Athens, Georgia. He's been someone who through RUF shaped me significantly. One of the things I remember him teaching us as we were being trained in ministry, and um, I can't say it as he would, but he would say, you people need to understand, underneath you and underneath everybody right about here is this resistance meter. And you can't see it, but it's there. And people's resistance meter is their resistance to God and to the gospel. And that resistance meter, it's fluctuating all the time. Just like in your relationships with people. There are times where you and your wife are warm and affectionate and that resistance meter is at zero. And he said there are times that your relationship with your wife is conflicted and that resistance meter is high. He said our resistance meter towards God can be in flux too. And as you meet people, as you get to know people, as you, need, as you minister to people... You need to know that that resistance meter is somewhere and you need to try to figure out where it is because that's going to have everything to do with how you speak to them and engage them. And if you've ever tried to minister to people, you know that that's true. Sometimes you'll get this, do not talk to me. And sometimes you'll get this, please tell me I'm desperate. That's the resistance meter. And so everybody's heart and ours included that resistance meter is somewhere every day of the week. Maybe you didn't get enough sleep last night. Maybe the coffee didn't percolate. And you're just mad at everybody. That's your resistance meter. But when we care about others and when we discern our own hearts, we're doing the hard work of discerning where's my resistance meter. What's the posture of my heart right now toward God's word, God's worship, God's people? Am I in a good place? Am I in a bad place? So we have to think about ourselves if we take the teaching of apostasy real. And the same is true in our families and in our church family. We've got to realize every single one of us could be at risk of apostasy. So how we engage each other, how we speak to one another, how we treat one another, it matters. Because we want to always see that resistance meter knocked down. And we certainly don't want to be the one that ticks it up, right? So to take it honestly, to take it really for what it is, we've got to view ourselves, our own hearts, and everybody else with that in mind. Now I'm going to conclude with this, because this is a hard message. Every one of you has probably thought of people, other people, maybe other than yourself, that you're concerned about this possible sin of apostasy. And some of you maybe are at a point of despair. You have no hope. Because you're like me, you think you can read the conclusion before the conclusion has been written. I want to share this story from one of the commentaries I've used in this series. This pastor tells this story, and there's no way to do this other than to read it, so I apologize. I usually don't, but I think, I think it will work. Listen to this, and I'll, I would title this, Concerning Apostasy, It's Not Over Till It's Over, So Don't Lose Hope in yourself or in anyone else. 
The pastor says this, I had a pastoral situation some time ago that is instructive on apostasy. It involved a young woman who had been close to my wife and to me while she was a student at the college where I taught. After she graduated, we maintained some contact and it became clear after several years that this woman had fallen deeply into sin. At one point, she visited our home and lamented this with tears. She attended church with us and went back to where she lived, determined to do better. However, she soon fell in with an unbelieving crowd. And the next time I spoke with her, she informed me that she had come to realize the falsehood of Christianity. Unable to answer her atheist friends, she began reading Nietzsche and other atheist philosophers, and she rejected the faith. Needless to say, I was distressed by this news. So far as this went, our passage in Hebrews 10 presented a stark possibility to my soul, since her deliberate embrace of sin suggested a fearful expectation of judgment. Well, time passed until I was asked to perform a wedding for a young man I had also known in those olden days. The wedding was in this woman's hometown, and she was invited. And sure enough, she was there at the wedding reception, sticking out like a sore thumb in this Christian crowd by the way that she dressed and acted. Reluctantly, she approached me. And after a brief conversation, she agreed to drive me to the airport that evening. Along the way, she recounted to me the various philosophies that had led her away from Christ, many of them advocating ideas the writer of Hebrews wanted his own flock to avoid. I was tired after the wedding and didn't think I could manage to keep straight the various Christian answers to each of these challenges. Instead, I simply asked her, Tell me which came first, your descent into sin or these philosophical convictions? Was it the philosophy that persuaded you of sin or the sin that persuaded you of the philosophy? To my astonishment, she broke down at once in tears, admitting that atheism had gripped her only after she had fallen badly into sin. However, she insisted... She was no longer a Christian, but an apostate. She had betrayed the Lord. Even if she wanted to come back, she said, citing passages like the one in Hebrews 10, her sins had damned her forever. As our conversation progressed, now at the airport, I confronted her with a question at the heart of what our passage from Hebrews is all about. I asked her, have you renounced Jesus Christ? Are you doing that now? Are you saying that he is not the son of God? That he did not die upon the cross for sinners? Do you now repudiate Jesus Christ? If you can say that, I will admit that you are an apostate. He then says, I don't know which one of us was more nervous. But she could not repudiate Jesus. And that evening, I had the privilege to evangelize her all over again, starting with the cross where Jesus took the wrath of God in her place 
She had backslidden, badly so, but she was not apostate. As of this writing, she has repudiated her life of sin, is an active member in a Bible-believing church, and is growing steadily in the Lord. Now, why do I take the time to read all that? But that it's not over until it's over. We don't give up on the grace of God, His Word, His Spirit, to call a people home, to lead them all the way home. Perhaps you're the one at risk of apostasy. Perhaps a loved one, a friend, a family member is at risk. Our duty is to pray for them, to remind them of what's true, to love them, and to trust that God will be faithful to his promises. Oh, it's a hard subject. It's a warning passage for sure. But I'll finish with these final words. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is the hope to remember on this subject. Be confident, he says. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. In Hebrews chapter 12, just two chapters from now, he calls the Lord the author and finisher of our faith. In John chapter 10, what we heard last week, Jesus said of the Father, no one can snatch you from his hand. That's the good news for those who abide in Jesus. Let's pray that we would believe it and live accordingly. Lord, so many words this morning. My prayer is that they're not too many and that all that is said is faithful and true and helpful. But for our hearts, Lord, would you remind us that we're to examine them frequently, that we're to love others well, always conscious that sin seeks to harden every one of us. But our great hope is in you, your word and spirit working together to soften the work of sin, to remove the penalty of sin, and to give us a new power by your spirit to walk faithfully with you. We pray it, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.